Well, we're continuing on in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, This is the last little uh, fragment of chapter 9. And uh, really, you know, the question is, uh, what are the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection ultimately, but but really more to the point here in chapter 9, what are the implications of His turn toward Jerusalem? Now, we've noticed, you know, a couple of kind of signal moments in the Gospel of Luke have taken place in chapter 9. First, that Peter uh, confesses for the first time, identifies Jesus uh, as the Son of God, uh, probably speaking for the disciples. And then also, uh, we noted the transfiguration. Both of those kind of indicate this big turning point. Um, But back up in in verse 21, uh, Jesus had, right after uh, Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ of God, uh, he lets them know that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now, this is impenetrable for them, uh, but later on in the chapter, verse 44, uh, he says it uh, in a particularly potent way. He says, let these words sink into your ears. Uh, Pay very close attention to this, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then all of that leads up to uh, what was read last week in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And I want, I want us to understand that in a dramatic way, uh, that Jesus is setting his face to go to Jerusalem. He is determined to accomplish the will of God. He is determined to be obedient uh, to the Father's Uh, call in his life to the reason that he was sent uh, to save the lost. And we have to ask the question, does that have anything to do with you and me? Uh, What does that have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? Well, I want to say that if you're not a Christian, uh, this has everything to do with you. Uh, That the Son of God, as we understand it, who is alive and who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who was raised from the dead stands before you and both invites you to life, invites you to joy and peace, invites you to rest, and at the same time commands you uh, to repent. Uh, The gospel goes out in both of those frames. It goes out as a command. This is something you must do. You need to bend the knee. Uh, But it also goes out as a promise uh, that Christ will give you life, that Christ will give you Uh, rest for your soul. Uh, So if you're not a Christian, Jesus' determination to get to Jerusalem has everything to do with you. Now, if you are a Christian, well, actually, it also has everything to do with you. Uh, Because our lives, all of our lives, uh, we Christians are tempted and we are seduced uh, to compromise the gospel and to live half-heartedly. In fact, we almost reinforce that sensibility uh, in each other. Uh, We tend to kind of encourage it. Uh, We slowly become ready uh, to be merely religious. Uh, We forget the rock from which we've been hewn and the pit from which we've been dug, the very thing that Isaiah said that we were to remember. Uh, Like the religious leaders uh, who asked for Jesus' death, we are tempted all the time to make a mockery uh, of the real faith. And so it has everything to do with us to consider uh, what it is that Jesus is doing, what he's saying, and how he's teaching his disciples 
as he turns and sets his face uh, toward Jerusalem. So with that in mind, I'm going to read uh, this last paragraph of, uh, of Luke chapter 9. If you've got Bibles, you can take a look. I'm starting in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, Thus far the reading of God's word. Uh, So they are going along the road. This is a road trip. Uh, Road trips exist in the popular imagination in a very positive way. Uh, We love to go on road trips. I love getting in the car with my wife and heading out for a destination. We're already planning our next trip and where we're going to go and where we're going to stop and who we're going to see. In popular literature, in the popular imagination, a road trip oftentimes has uh, uh, more weight uh, than that. Uh, but this is a particular kind of road trip. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read of the differences, um, of the stark difference in Tolkien's writing uh, between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, but The Hobbit has a subtitle. Uh, I don't know if you remember it. I've been promising hamburgers to people who know these obscure things, but I'm running out of hamburgers. But uh, the subtitle to The Hobbit is There and Back Again. And Tolkien told that story in a very specific way uh, that Bilbo was going to go out and he was going to have this adventure and he was going to come back home. Uh, the Lord of the Rings is decidedly not that. There is no anticipation that Frodo's ever going to get home. He knows that he's got a task to do and he knows that he may well lose his life uh, in the doing of it. So it is not there and back again. So this road trip carries that kind of gravity. Uh, I don't know if you've Uh, know very much about the Moravians. Uh, It's a little Christian denomination. They have their seminary in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. They originate from a region of uh, the Czech Republic called Moravia. Uh, But in the day, the Moravians were a force to be reckoned with. They've got a lot of little churches up in the Winston-Salem area is how I got to know about them. Uh, But again, in the day, uh, they were the missionaries of missionaries. In fact, John Wesley was converted uh, at a Bible study of Moravians in London. Uh, during his day. But the the thing about the Moravians was that they would go on these missions journeys and they would buy one-way tickets uh, because they knew they weren't coming back. Uh, Their purpose was to go and preach the gospel in a hostile atmosphere in which they were very likely to lose their lives. So that's what's happening here. And, uh, And so it's a serious endeavor. Again, Jesus has set his face. And there are three interactions with three different traveling companions, and the first one is a little bit lighthearted. The first one says to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, This is a casual assertion of faithfulness that in Jesus' response, we understand, may not carry much weight, may not carry much gravity. And, And you always need to be careful when you assert that you will be faithful. Uh, The the section in the book of Exodus has been haunting to me for a long time, uh, where the Israelites uh, uh, put the covenant into effect 
uh, that the Lord has given them. There's a covenant enactment ceremony, and they sacrifice the bulls, and they uh, do all of the ceremonies, and then they stand up and with one voice say, we will obey, we will obey. And it's almost an assertion of their will rather than a, a real earnest commitment to faithfulness because we know what happened to Israel. We know that, that only two of them got out of the wilderness. We know that, in fact, their profession, we will obey, we will follow, we will do whatever is necessary, was shallow and it was hollow. Jesus responds to that by saying foxes, have holes, dens in some translations, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't know if you thought much about that. Um, It seems to me that what is clearly being said by Jesus to this young man, and one of the, I'm I'm assuming he's a young man, maybe he's an old man, maybe he's a young woman. Uh, Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Um, uh, One of the sermons I read said this person is an idealist is full of vigor, is energetic, but not thoughtful. And, and Jesus responds by telling him, oh, really? Uh, and indicating that in order to follow Jesus, there is going to be dissonance, there's going to be discomfort, there's going to be unease, and Jesus has told them there is going to be rejection. So be careful what you promise, be careful what you're going to do. Jesus' statement to this young person, and again, I'm assuming young, Jesus' statement to this person is quite at odds uh, with the way that contemporary evangelicals imagine a life of faithfulness. We imagine a life of faithfulness to be full of blessing. We imagine a life of faithfulness to be, I mean, to be completely pejorative about it, we imagine it to be living our best lives now. We imagine that if we are faithful to Jesus, that that prosperity is going to flow, that happiness is going to uh, take us on and envelop us and hold us close. So much so that when there's disruption, you know, when unhappiness, when even tragedy befalls us, you know, one of the questions that, that pops up in the evangelical mind is, why would God let this happen to me? Now, I understand the cry of despair, and I understand the grief of loss. But the way that that gets turned theologically into a place where God has somehow fallen short of what he's promised is an indication that we haven't really understood very carefully uh, what Jesus was saying. We're trained by almost everything around us, as well as by our own instincts, to avoid discomfort, and, and, and to pursue pleasure, and we evangelical Christians do that as much as everyone else in the culture. I mean, after all, we watch the same commercials, we read the same news, uh, we are enveloped in this way of thinking. And so we avoid difficult relationships, we avoid difficult conversations, we avoid difficult tasks. We, you know, we say, you know, we, we need to steer clear of that, all the while, in a sense, kind of trusting in Jesus and presuming upon his promise to forgive. Now, again, this is something that needs to be tackled very carefully. You know, but there is nothing more hazardous to the state of your soul than presumption. I remember uh, when I was 
in seminary, I attended a church uh, in Philadelphia, lively, vibrant, wild church, uh, very energetic, and really superiorly gifted pastor. And, uh, and T and I married, moved to North Carolina, and we got word that uh, one of the elders had seduced and run off with one of the other elders' wives. And they'd gone into the wilds of New Jersey, if you can imagine such a thing. And they disappeared. And, and, and we got the phone call one night that that had happened, and we were dumbfounded by it. You know, we turned off the TV because the TV show that we were watching or the videotape had to do with adultery. And we, and we shut it off and said, we can't watch that stuff. It's not entertaining to us. And, uh, and it was bitter. It messed us up. We prayed. We got more involved, actually, uh, in that couple. And happily, uh, the wife was soon restored to her husband. Um, but she wrote to the pastor of the church. And she said, my critical flaw was that I had mistaken faith for presumption that I thought I could be a Christian, I could presume upon God's willingness to forgive me, and I could sin so grievously against my husband, against my family, and against the church, and against the Lord, because it was really only the Lord that I sinned against. So this, this presumption is uniquely damaging uh, to the life of the church. And, and, and we oftentimes presume on God's good favor and God's good grace to be uh, half-hearted or even lazy or even uh, careless about our discipleship. And, and we think that this protestation, I will follow you wherever I go, uh, covers all of that. I think Jesus' response here indicates that it does not. He said, you don't know what you're promising. He says the same thing to his disciples later on when they say, hey, can we sit on the right and the left hand? He said, you don't have any idea what you're asking. And he says, can you be baptized with the baptism that I'm about to undergo? And they say, yeah, sure. He said, you have no idea. So he tells them to be careful that foxes have their dens, the birds have their nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This resonates, actually, much of what we've been reading resonates with Hebrews. Maybe the whole Bible resonates with Hebrews. But uh, Tim preached from chapter 11 that Abraham went to live in a land of promise, uh, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. At the end of that chapter, he says, all of these saints that he recounts lived or died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. They desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Jesus says, be careful in your earnest protestations of faithfulness. Be careful. Now, there are two other interactions, and those are actually pretty similar. Uh, Jesus says, follow me. Uh, and, uh, and the one guy uh, says, first, I have to go bury my father. And the other one says, sure, I will follow you. I First, I need to go back and say goodbye uh, to those at home. Uh, these fellow travelers basically say to Jesus, I'm glad to follow, but, you know, there, there are some uh, contingencies. There are some situational realities that are going to legitimately, at least in their minds, cause me to delay 
my discipleship. And when my dad was being very firm and I was trying to argue with him, he would say, no ifs, ands, or buts. I don't know if any of you had a dad that would say that to you. But no ifs, ands, or buts. These two propose that there should be exceptions. There should be certain situations that would mitigate obedience. Certain events in someone's life that would make it reasonable that obedience could be delayed. I mentioned it in the adult ed class this morning, but Augustine had a famous prayer uh, that has been reduced, you know, for the common consumption to, uh, he said, Lord, make me good, just not yet. Be at work in me so that I might be conformed to the image of Jesus, but don't do it too quickly. He recounted that in his confessions as one of the stages leading up to um, God saving him. Millions of people have echoed that prayer. You may have echoed it this week. Said, Lord, go to work in me, but not too quickly, not quite yet. Uh, Each of these appeal to family or domestic responsibilities, one to bury his father, the other to bid the farewell, uh, to bid farewell to his family. And, um, you know, we need to see that in ancient Near Eastern culture, uh, family was a big deal. It was a very important reality. Elijah uh, was, uh, gave Elisha permission to go and say goodbye to his parents. Maybe that's what the one guy's thinking about. There's biblical precedent for this. Uh, but the commentators will point out that, in fact, if this guy's dad was on his deathbed, the first guy, he likely wouldn't be there in the first place. What he wants to do, maybe, is go back and secure his inheritance. Um, but with the importance of family, we need to kind of take a step back, and this will hurt. The Christian church in the 21st century and in the latter part of the 20th century has made a big deal about family. You know, we have proposed family values to be near and dear to us. Uh, I remember driving, I think I was on I-85, driving up through North Carolina, and I ran across a string, and I remember it vividly, four or five in a row, billboards for churches out on the interstate, every one of which had the name, had the word family uh, in the ad uh, that they were putting out there on the interstate about coming to their church. Some churches have even put the word family in the name of the church. I don't know if that's true in Petrie City, so if there is one, I'm not talking about them. But in that commitment to family, you know, there has been an over, there's, it's an overstated commitment to family uh, that I think ends up challenging obedience. You know, one of the things that has been said repeatedly is that in some ways the creep of homosexuality into the church is largely because of these overstated family values. You know, that a grandson calls his grandmother and says, I'm gay, and the grandmother goes to the pastor and says, I'm with my grandson. What are you going to do about it? And that that's the way that kind of compromise has started to take place. That's one of the principal avenues is through this otherwise good value of family. When nothing could be more clear in the teaching of Jesus than that he would divide families. And we'll see that, God willing, as we get to chapter 12 and chapter 14 of Luke. Jesus responds to both of these guys who are proposing 
what is in their mind reasonable mitigations to their obedience, at least a delay in their obedience. Jesus references the kingdom of God. Don't miss these two references in verse 60 and 62. But as for you, he says, leave the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then in response to the second man, he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And that idea of the kingdom of God will get picked up in the next passage as well. Uh, Jesus is speaking about kingdom. You know, that what you are investing yourself in and following me is what he's saying is a kingdom in which there is a king. And we often tend to think of the kingdom of God in terms of blessings received. That we are entering entering the kingdom of God in which there is shalom, you know, in which we are going to be the recipients of all kinds of uh, benefits for having joined the kingdom of God. And, and actually, that's true. But the fundamental reality of the kingdom of God is there is a king. And we, we don't understand kings. We're in a democratic situation, and I'm glad for it. But they knew what a kingdom was about. And the first thing that a kingdom is about is the king and the fealty to the king that is required of the citizens of that kingdom. All previous commitments and priorities are canceled out. There is only one commitment and priority that matters now, and that's to the king. There can be no delay. You can't put it off. You can't postpone it. To do so is hazardous. You won't do it perfectly. You're going to mess up. But you need to head in one direction and in one direction only. You know, and the question comes up, you know, why would Jesus make such rigorous demands? I thought that Jesus was nice. I thought that Jesus was generous. I thought that he was gracious. I mean, after all, he received all of these vagabonds in society. He was nice to them. Uh, Rich Mullins' lyric has always captivated me. The whores all seem to love him and the drunks propose a toast, saying, surely God is with us. And that extends into a uh, call to commitment that is soft. Uh, In fact, Jesus is saying exactly the opposite. The reason he makes rigorous demands is because of the nature and magnitude of the gift that he offers. The gift is so enormous. It has of necessity to change your life. You know, it's kind of, I mean, I know a lot of us, our imaginations run wild, and inappropriately so, with what we would do if we won the lottery. And, I, and all of us probably think, boy, if I won the lottery, what great good I would do to the world and those around me. Uh, in fact, the, the, the reality of the matter is not uh, exactly that. But in fact, it is the case that if you did win the lottery, if hundreds of millions were dumped on you, you would not live the same way you're living. The enormity of that change in situation would affect and would compel change in your life. And Jesus is saying, that's what's happening if you're following me. It's simply that the nature of the kingdom of God, that its inhabitants live with different goals, different aspirations, different values, different commitments. And there are many attempts in the church at large uh, to make the good news accessible. And those are laudable efforts. But in the end, there's a certain inaccessibility. 
what's being described in the Gospel of Luke, at least, everywhere in the Bible, really, is a whole new understanding and experience of life. Everything is going to be different if you line up with Jesus. Everything. You can't live life the way you used to live it. And this hand of the plow reference is, I think, is very helpful. And again, let's just remember that Jesus is flawlessly loving his disciples. He's getting them ready. He's getting them ready for what life is going to be like when they get to Jerusalem and he is betrayed and executed. And what life is going to be like those many days later uh, when he is ascended to his father and they're told to go and wait for the gift of the Spirit in Jerusalem. He's getting them ready. He's lovingly caring for them. And he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, I've, I've told you in the, in the past that I have ridden motorcycles, and I've enjoyed that quite a bit. I don't do it much anymore. I don't own a motorcycle anymore. Uh, but part of the joy of riding a motorcycle is to take classes where you can learn how to ride better. And one of the absolute um, pillars of motorcycle riding is you need to look at where you want to go. And if you don't look at where you want to go and rather look at the obstacle that you're trying to avoid, you will inevitably run into that obstacle. It's a little bit of a miracle. It's kind of, I, I was surprised when it actually worked. But one of the things you have to do to pass a test is you have to make a U-turn within a parking space. You know, and I'm trying to make the U-turn and I'm look, looking like this and I would drop the bike. And the instructor said, turn your head around, look behind you, look at where you want to go, and that motorcycle, zoop, would head in the other direction. And which is even better to know uh, when you're approaching a tree. <laughs> if you look at that tree, you're going to run right into it. But you've got to look over here, and there's where the bike's going to go. Well, in the same way, if you're hand plowing, and you're trying to cut a straight row with your plow, and you turn around and start looking somewhere else, guess where the plow is going to go? And that's just farming. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples about a life lived in fealty to the king of the kingdom. And he's saying to them that if you are half-hearted, that if you imagine that certain situations mitigate your discipleship, if you imagine that there are certain places where you can put it off or ignore it for a while, ultimately that's not going to go well with you. And just as the farmer is going to look at this wreck of a field in which he can plant nothing and harvest little, that's what your life's going to end up looking like. Again, Jesus is getting his disciples ready for what life is going to be like uh, as the kingdom of God expands and as he accomplishes his purposes and returns to his father to sit at his right hand. Now, of course, you can note that Jesus himself is living what he is requiring uh, he certainly lives as though the world is not his home. He owns nothing. He remains single. He doesn't have a savings account. He has no insurance policy. And, and, and it's true that not every Christian is required to sustain that level of physical detachment. Uh, all are commanded to the kind of emotional or psychological detachment from the world. You know, when, when you're on the road and you check into a hotel... You know, you don't run down to Hobby Lobby to buy accoutrements to spruce up the hotel room. You know that it's just a hotel room. It's a place for you to sleep, hopefully comfortably, 
until you can get back on the road. Jesus refers to your earthly life in that way as preparation for eternity. And while Jesus certainly loved his biological family, he clearly leaves them behind while in pursuit of his mission, even going so far as to identify as his family members those who will hear the word of God. These are my mother and brother and sisters. Again, in Hebrews, we're told that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there are many applicable points. There are many places for you to think about uh, where this goes in your life. You and I have many ifs, ands, and buts. And it would be good for you to be able to identify those. You might need to ask a friend uh, to help you identify those. But it is routinely the case that we will say, I cannot do what God is calling me to do in this situation because of some kind of difficulty that has arisen. The clearest place where this takes place is is the assertion that I cannot love this person because of what that person has done to me. I mean, Jesus is very clear that you love those who don't treat you well. But it's almost an axiom in the church. If someone doesn't treat me well, I'm, not, I'm, I'm free from loving him. I don't need to love him. I don't need to engage in hard conversations. I don't need to humble myself. I don't need to forgive. I mean, that's the therapeutic self. I don't need to forgive. That might damage my sense of self-esteem. Uh, what I hear frequently and experience myself is, I, you know, I've tried but it's just not working, so I'm going to step away from it. I've tried to love that person. I've tried to engage with that person. I've tried to speak the truth. I've tried to do X, Y, or Z. It didn't work, so I'm set free from God's command to do what he's calling me to do. I heard a minister say this sometime, and at some point I'm going to have quoted it so much I'll just call it my own and stop citing it. But he said, when God calls you, to do something you don't want to do or to go somewhere that you don't want to go, you get to find out who the real God in your life is. I want to say that again because it's very important. When God calls you to go somewhere you don't want to go or to do something you don't want to do, you get to find out who the real God of your life is. There was an article that popped up on Gospel Coalition this week. Um, that, that played on that old trope, and you and I have all said it, I'll be more godly when I'm older. Actually, I'm old now, and I know that I didn't become more godly, so that didn't work. If you're young, thinking that you'll become God, more godly later on, that's not true. You know, if you think, you know, I, I will be more godly when my situation in life changes, then I'll have time to pray. Then I'll have time to invest myself in the Word. You know, then I'll have time to have healthy relationships. You know, it is, it is always the case that I have been put into a situation in which fealty to the king can be postponed. And Jesus is warning you and me very strenuously here, saying that's not going to work for you. That's not going to work. You can't put your hand to the plow and look back and be fit for the kingdom of God. And again, it's just because of the nature of the kingdom. This is what the kingdom's all about. And he is lovingly, compassionately, gently 
uh, in forming his disciples. If you avoid the difficult relationship, if you postpone your growth in grace, if you don't apologize, hoping that everything will just kind of work itself out and iron itself out, if you give up, it will not go well for you. Jesus is saying, pay attention. Pay attention to this. Consider the magnitude of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm very good at identifying where other people are falling short of the strenuous demand of Jesus. Not as good at noting where I fall short. And I imagine that my brothers and sisters here are kind of in the same boat. Uh, Jesus, you said that you would send the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin. And, uh, and we simply pray that you would give us unusual insight into our own characters, uh, into the places where we're postponing our obedience, into the places where we are putting off until tomorrow what needs to be done today. And that you would do this so that repentance would be fostered. And we know that when repentance is fostered, there's also uh, an apprehension of your grace that is deeper and and more full-orbed than it had been in the past. And so, Father, even in this week, as on the one hand we're getting ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper next week, that you would give us a particular sensitivity, a particular sensibility of our need, of the places where we have willingly compromised our discipleship. Uh, We we ask this so that you would be honored, uh, so that our celebration of the supper would be full of joy, and, uh, and so that relationships could be healed, and so that we could do that fundamental thing about which Jesus said the world would take notice, and that is love each other. Uh, so please help us. Uh, do this for your own honor. In Jesus' name, amen.